It's a good day, and it's a good day because it's a new day, and it's a new day, and that means? Wow. Like, does the dog wag the tail or the tail wag the dog? Like, nice. All right. Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we're continuing in a series today uh, that we started last week that we're entitling Ships. Um, not because I know much about boats, but I think this, this works pretty well as an analogy. Um, you know, these days, a ship out at sea uses GPS to make its way around. So they got this global positioning system, satellites and computers, and that's how they make their way around. Uh, back in the day, when there were real sailors in the world, uh, before GPS, they used star charts. And uh, if, you, if you were ever to kind of go back and read and study uh, how they made their way around, it actually is pretty fascinating that there were some people that were pretty smart and figured out uh, how the constellations move throughout the year and that they move in a certain way. And so they're able to use the constellations at different times during the year to plot a course. Uh, they figured out that at different times during the year that the sun rises and sets at different points on the horizon. So they were using the sun and the stars to figure things out. And, um, and they were able to do that at sea, which is amazing because there's no landmarks. Obviously, you're out in the ocean. So how do you have these charts in the horizon and figure out where you are? And to make it even crazier than that, uh, what if it was overcast? Like right now, apparently outside. <laughs> like what if it was cloudy for a day, for five days, for a couple of weeks, and you had no way of seeing the stars? Uh, or what if like a really bad storm came your way, and it blew you off course? And then where are you? In the water. Well, they could still take these charts, look at where the sun is rising and setting. All right, this is where we are. This is where we're trying to get to. They recorrect their course and navigate to where they're supposed to get to. And, uh, you know, the, it's amazing what they're able to do. You take me and you put me out on a boat in the middle of the ocean and ask me to find my way home, it's a death sentence. I'll see you in heaven. You know, I, I am not making it back, you know, at all. Like, I could barely make my way back on shore if I'm in Andrew Pond. Like, so, as for our illustration in our sermon series, a ship is designed for a specific task. It has a specific job that it's meant to accomplish. It's meant to get from port A to port B. Meanwhile, as it moves from port A to port B, it's, to tr it's meant to take cargo along the way to, to transport people, to tra transport supplies. And for that to happen, three things are needed. Displacement, propulsion, and navigation. A uh, ship has to displace water. If it doesn't displace enough water, it will sink. So it has to push water out of the way, in essence. All right, so, okay, so we got the displacement, uh, but if you don't have propulsion, you're just going to sit dead in the water. You're just going to float. So you need propulsion, and you also need navigation. So who cares if you displace water and you can float, and who cares if you have propellers, propellers, um, propellers <laughs> if you're from certain parts of the country. Uh, so who cares if you can displace water? Who cares if you have propellers? If you don't know where you are in the water and you don't know which way you're supposed to go. It's like you need all three, correct? So by analogy, here's what we're doing in this series. Think of yourself as a ship. So God has created you for a specific task in this world. God wants you. He has made you 
saved you, if you're in Christ, he saved you to move in life from port A to port B, to move your life in a very specific direction toward an ultimate destination. And as we move from port A in our life to port B, we are to carry and transport precious cargo, whether it's the gospel itself and stewarding the gospel and taking that to other people, whether it's financially or, or just our hands being able to be a blessing and a help to people that are in need. So that is our job. Well, for that to happen, three things are necessary. Displacement, propulsion, and navigation. So we need to have displacement of sin in our life. We need to push sin aside Far from us so that we float. Because if we don't push the sin away, we will sink. Our lives will sink. So we got to displace sinful behavior, sinful habits, sinful patterns, sinful attitudes. We need propulsion. Well, for us, propulsion is, is grace. It's God's love. That's what thrusts us forward. That is what compels us forward. It's the gospel that moves us and pushes us in a, in a certain direction. And we need navigation, which is where God and his word come in. Like we want to listen to the Lord. We need to listen to him. Like, what step do I take? Which way do I go? What's the right path for him to set the course of our life? So all three are needed. we got to display sin. We need the grace of God to propel us, and we need him to navigate for us. So in the series, what we're doing to help us all be the ship that God wants us to be, we're looking at the different ships of the Bible. So last week, we looked at stewardship, and in the series, we're going to be looking at leadership, and we're going to be looking at partnership. We're going to be looking at fellowship, hardship, and worship. Those are all the ships. This is not a series on Noah's Ark. Right, The ships, those ships, because if we want to be a good ship that goes from port A to port B and does what we're supposed to do, we need to incorporate those different disciplines into our life. And today we're looking at discipleship. The word disciple is a simple word that means follower. A disciple is a student. Right now I have uh, 13 disciples. I have my four through six-year-old soccer team. I have quite honestly never been as proud of a team. This is my fifth year in coaching this age group. I have never been as proud. I've never had a team move and grow and improve and learn as much as quickly as this team has um, and, and for the parents who, who are around, they know I really only bark two things for like two months at the kids. I, I just yell at them constantly in a nice way, uh, but I have to yell, uh, where's the ball, where's the ball, where's the ball, and go get it. Those are the only two things I say to them. Where's the ball? Go get it. Where's the ball? Go get it. So where's the ball? Turn it around. Stop the ball. Control the ball. Dribble the ball. Wrong way. Like I spend the whole game just yelling at, where's the ball? Go get it. Be aggressive. Um, well, that, that is what discipleship is. Discipleship is telling someone the right direction. Discipleship is giving the direction so that people know what to do, what's next, what step to go, which way to go in their life. So that's what I do. I point them in the right direction. I point them to the ball. I tell them what to do. And these four, five, six-year-olds, man, they're listening. They're following the directions with great success. And even though we officially don't keep score for... This team, 
this league, we know what's up, don't we? The Anthem Lightning, that's her name, the Anthem Lightning, we undefeated. So, which I thought for sure we wouldn't win a game this year, and we're undefeated. And so I will say this, our last game is Tuesday night at 7 at Jack Marley Park at the Little Field. We've got, out of the 13 kids, 11 are a little anthemers. So if you don't have anything to do, or even if you do, this is more important, come and support Come and support and just cheer for the kids and boo the other team. That, that'll, that'll be good. Um, so the thing is that everyone is a disciple. Everyone on the planet is a disciple. Everyone's a student. Everyone follows something. Everyone has a teacher. Everyone follows a teaching that sets the course and direction for their life. Everyone is a ship moving in a certain direction. The question for each of us is, who are we listening to? Who is or what is our teacher? What is setting the course of our life? What direction are we actually moving in? And so what we see in chapter 5 is Jesus offering some discipleship for us. Jesus is offering to, to give us some direction in Matthew chapter 5, to give us some navigation, to provide good direction for our lives. So that's what we see in Matthew 5. Ready? Matthew 5, chapter, verses 1 and 2 says, Seeing the crowd, he, referring to Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So here's the story. Jesus goes up on a hill. He sits down. When he sits down, his students, his disciples, his followers, they know it's class time, right? It's, it's discipleship time. So they gather near, and when they gather near, in verse 2, it says that he opened his mouth and he spoke, right? So now it's, he, he teaches them. He actually he taught them in verse 2. By extension, he's teaching us today. He teaches his disciples in the first century, every disciple since, disciples today in the 21st century. So we're going to listen to what it is that Jesus teaches us. But before we unpack what he specifically says in verses 3 through 10, I want, to call, I want to call attention to a very important distinction. The difference between religion and discipleship, okay? Religion is doing something with what Jesus says. Religion is doing something with what Jesus teaches, Discipleship is letting what Jesus says do something to us. Let me repeat that. Religion is taking what Jesus says and doing something with it. Discipleship is letting what Jesus says and teaches do something to us. And there is a profound difference between religion and discipleship. So Jesus prayed for us. In John 17, 17, he prays in there, in that verse, he says, sanctify them in the truth. So he's, Jesus, God the Son, is praying to God the Father, sanctify them. Them refers to all of his disciples, so all of us who believe in him. Sanctify them in the truth, and then he adds, your word is truth. So God's will or God's desire for our life is our sanctification which is the 50-cent seminary word that just refers to being less sinful and more like Jesus. It's all it means. 
What's it mean to be sanctified? When Jesus prays, sanctify them, he's like, may they become less and less sinful and more and more like Christ. And the way sanctification takes place is through the word of God. Jesus even prayed that in that verse. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So it's as we're exposed to the word of God, as we read it, study it, hear it preached, meditate on it, memorize it, as we learn it, it has this incredible effect upon our hearts. It kind of comes in and invades the space of our heart, and it starts like pushing sin away. God's word transforms us from the inside out. It does something to us. We are sanctified by it as we immerse our hearts and our minds in, in his word. So just the previous chapter, Matthew 4, I think this is interesting. Just a few verses before where we started, Matthew 4, 4. It, Jesus actually quotes the Old Testament, and there he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Comes from the mouth of God. Then we move just a few verses into chapter 5, verse 2, and it says that Jesus opened his mouth and taught. Isn't that interesting? That's not coincidental. Man lives by the very word of God, by what comes out of the mouth of God. In the very next time Jesus teaches, it specifically says he opened his mouth. So Jesus is God, and according to John chapter 1, Jesus is the word of God. And so here, if we would just keep our eyes fixed on him, if we would keep our ears in tune with what he says and what he teaches, it, the word, will have an effect on us. It will change us. It will sanctify us. So Jesus calls us to follow him. We use words like Christian. We use words like believer. The Bible word is follower. Okay, so Jesus calls us to follow him. So again, just a few verses before chapter 5, he goes up to this cat named Peter and his brother named Andrew, and he says to them, hey, come and follow me. And they lay down their, their nets, and they followed Jesus. So today, he asked the same thing. When, when we hear an invitation, we hear the gospel preached, we have an opportunity to say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you, just like disciples back then, disciples today will follow Jesus. So just know that this isn't just some mechanical following. There's a point to it. The point of Jesus calling someone to follow him is so that that person may become like him. That's the goal of Christian discipleship, to become like the, the teacher, to follow so closely that we imitate him, that we walk like him. So that's the goal of discipleship, and that goal is what gives direction to our life. That goal is what gives direction to our life. We, as believers, as Christians, as followers, as disciples of Jesus, our aim is to become like him, so we then aim our life at him. Make sense? Jesus, think of him as your north star. So you set the course of your life according to that north star. He's our teacher. So we listen to what he says, to what he teaches, to his instruction, that we may become more like him. That is the point of the verses we're about to cover here in the next few minutes. So, This is what he teaches in verses 3 through 10. 
And if you would notice that in each one of those verses, Matthew 5, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, in all of those verses, they all begin with the same word, blessed. Or some people might say blessed, right? There's a, a, a major scandal in church about which is the right pronunciation. Uh, it'll probably split this church someday, so, uh, but not today, so I'm not going to get into it. Um, but I prefer blessed. But anyway, uh, blessed, the word blessed means fortunate. That's all it means, fortunate. So in verse 3, the fortunate are the ones who are poor in spirit. The fortunate, the blessed ones are those who are poor in spirit. So just know that's not a negative statement. That's not a pejorative or in any way, it's not some critical, bad, bad phrase to use at someone. To be in poor in spirit just simple, simply means to be humble. That's all it means, is it to, to be humble of heart. It's the opposite of pride. It's what, it, what poor of, in spirit means. Uh, the, the person who's poor in spirit recognizes that we don't bring anything to God. Like, I'm poor. So what... what do I really bring to God? To be poor in spirit means to, to know that basically we're naked before God, um, that there's nothing really good in us, of us, just in and of itself of us. So, so what do we really have to offer God? Uh, to be poor in spirit is to recognize that he doesn't need us. We need him. The poor in spirit are those who are completely dependent upon God for anything, for everything that is good, for the new mercies, for the daily bread, the protection, the, the leading, the guiding, all of it, life, breath, health, job, food on the table, everything. We know that we are completely dependent upon the Lord and his grace for everything. So just a question why is that fortunate, though? Like, why is it fortunate for a person to know that they're completely dependent on God? Why are they the blessed ones? And I think it's really simple. It's because it's the truth. So which fish is the fortunate one? The fish who thinks it's a silverback gorilla or the fish who knows it's a fish? I would say the latter is the more fortunate one because the former will one day, you know, say, you know what, I'm kind of tired of the ocean. I want, I, I'm a silverback gorilla, so I'm going to, like, swim on shore, and I'm going to make my way into the jungle because I want me some of them nanners. Well, that fish is going to quickly find itself just flopping around on the beach, covered in sand, gasping for breath, and getting picked at by birds. Is that fish fortunate? Far from it. The blessed fish is the one who's like, I'm a fish. I know I'm a fish. I'm good being a fish. I, I, I accept being a fish. I'm good with fish life. I totally embrace this ocean that I'm meant to swim in. That is a way more fortunate way of living and existence. The poor in spirit simply embrace the truth. We know that we are dependent on God, and we're good with it. We know that we were created to rely on God, and that's okay. We actually like it that way. That's our ocean. To think that we don't need the Lord is to be as insane as a fish thinking that it is a silverback gorilla. It is much better to just know that God loves us, and he's there, and he provides, he takes care of us, and he gives his children what they need. Like That's just better. 
just to know the truth. So the poor in spirit are those who are poor, so we know that we're poor before the Lord, but we also know that we're straight up wealthy. And that's the rest of verse 3. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is one of the great promises of the Bible, that those who are disciples of Jesus are citizens of heaven. That is our ultimate destination. So we know that this place is not the end for us, and this place is actually as bad as it gets for us who are disciples of Jesus. Our home, our real home, is an eternity in God's presence forever and ever. A place of light and of love and of grace and of gentleness forever and ever. Co-heirs with Christ, enjoying the inheritance that he deserves, he shares with us. We get to like share in the glories of his kingdom. We get to be a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God forever and ever. So those of us who are followers of Jesus, we're wealthy. It is the greatest wealth that there possibly can be. And we need to be clear that a disciple of Jesus does not receive the kingdom of heaven because we're poor in spirit. No. We're poor in spirit because we receive the kingdom of heaven. Understand? I'll say that again. A disciple of Jesus doesn't receive the kingdom of heaven because we are poor in spirit. We are poor in spirit because we receive the kingdom of heaven. So let me explain what I mean by that. I am a sinner. I am spiritually flawed. I am bankrupt before God. I have anger problems. I got patience problems. My thought life is far from what it should be. It is absolutely embarrassing to me to know what it is that goes through my mind and how I act and my attitude most of the time, let alone that God knows what goes through my mind and my heart on most days, on most occasions. Folks, I am absolutely bankrupt, and there is nothing that I can do about it. Nothing. Nothing at all. So here I am talking about this promise that I get to spend eternity in the presence of God. And there's no way I can earn such a privilege. There's no way I can earn a seat in his presence. I'm completely unworthy of that. God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfect, sinless. Like there is no darkness in God. Like no darkness abides in God. And darkness will not abide with God. There is no sin in God. And God will not let sin abide with him. Well, that's problematic because I'm a sinner and I lie, gossip, slander. Like, oh, it's all over. Like, it's really bad. And even if I don't say it, it's all up in my heart, right? It's all in there. So how in the world can, can I actually be in God's presence? So I'm a picky eater. So I've got my plate of food. Folks, I don't like it when my foods touch. I, I, I don't. Like, they better not touch ever. Or I need to get a new plate, and it is, I need new food, because it just doesn't, casserole's different, and soup doesn't count, because soup is a beverage, not a meal. <laughs> That's the only thing me and Jamie have ever thought about. Like, I, I think soup is a beverage. Well, you eat it with a spoon, so a milkshake, so it's, it doesn't matter. All right, anyway, <laughs> I'm off track. I'm not, I'm not in my right mind today. <laughs> If we had two services, we would go with the second recording if there were that service. 
All right. Um, what was I talking about? I don't like my foods to touch. How in the world am I going to be in the presence of God and touch his glory and touch his kingdom? And that's only possible because he's a God of grace. That's, that's the only way that's possible. Like the only way I get to have a share in his kingdom is that because it's a gift of love from a very loving and gentle and generous God who says, you don't deserve it, but I love you, so I'm going to give you an inheritance. I'm going to give you my kingdom to enjoy and to play in and have fun in and, and live like all of eternity in. And, and the thing is that knowing that, what does it do to us if we're a follower? Is that not humbling? Like it humbles us. So knowing the truth about God's promise humbles us, and it humbles us to the point that it points us in the right direction. It helps us, like knowing how much God loves us, how much he forgives us, helps me to keep focused on him. It points me, it navigates me in his direction. So I think what Jesus is doing in verse 3 is that he's calling attention to us to evaluate our heart. Evaluate your heart. Are you poor in heart? Are you poor in heart? Are you poor in spirit? The course of our life is, is pointed either by humility or by pride. It sets the course of our life. So we need to evaluate to make sure that we're always fighting against pride that we're growing in humility, that we're, we're enjoying the fact that we are dependent upon God for everything. Like that fish that says, you know what, I'm good with the ocean. Like as a disciple of Jesus, we should be like, I'm actually really good with relying on God for everything. Not just salvation, but each and every day for every, every little thing. I'm good with that. And the more we grow in that, the more we're growing in Christ's likeness. So, all right, most pastors, when they preach these verses, these verses are known as the Beatitudes. Um, most pastors, when they preach this, they do it in a series, like each one gets a sermon. Uh, only crazy pastors try to do it all in one setting. So here's lightning round. We're going to cover the rest of them in short fashion. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So to mourn means to weep. To be filled with deep sorrow. Now, doesn't everyone cry? Yeah. Like, isn't, I mean, everyone experiences sadness throughout, at some point in their life. Probably often, right? Um, if you're not sure about that, I dare anyone to watch the opening scene to Up. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you will be an emotional puddle in five minutes, and it takes you three days to recover. And if you don't cry, you are inhuman. Like, it is the saddest, and it's a cartoon or Pixar, whatever, right? Like, it's, it's amazing. Like, it's the saddest scene ever filmed, put on film. So, anyway, everyone cries, but that's not what Jesus is referring to here. He's not referring to any and every form of mourning. You, to understand this, you got to keep it in the greater context of the Bible. So how does the Bible begin? The Bible begins with paradise, does it not? It begins with a beautiful garden, husband and wife, with no marital drama. They're in this garden. they got plenty of food, bacon trees everywhere. 
because it was perfect. There's closeness with God that they're enjoying. Everything is as it should be. God even said, it's very good. All of the universe and creation are in perfect harmony, just how God had intended. But Adam and Eve mucked it up for all of us. They disobeyed God. They sinned. They, they disobeyed what it is that God said. God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, you shall surely die. They didn't listen to them. They ate of the forbidden fruit, and through that one willful act, sin, death, ailments, sickness, suffering, sorrow, catastrophe, pestilence, all entered the good creation. And it's been what has characterized life on planet Earth ever since. So the mourning in this verse is referring to the blessed ones who mourn over the fact that there is sin in the world. It is, it is mourning, weeping over the fact that there's evil in God's good world. That there is deep sadness and sorrow that this world and that you and me, we do not glorify the creator the way that we were meant to glorify the creator. That's the, the, the sorrow and the weeping that's happening here in verse 4. But those who mourn, like, like I, I'm sick of my sin, Lord. I'm sick of the sin in this world and the evil and the darkness. I'm mourning and weeping over it. Those who Mourn that way, the verse tells us that we will be comforted, does it not? Like, and it actually says it's God himself who, we're, who will console us. So at the, at the end of the age, Revelation 24, 21, chapter, uh, 21, verse 4, says that the day is coming when the Lord will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. There will be no more mourning, crying, or pain. So it's... It's a fact. It's a foregone conclusion. There will be a moment in which those who desire righteousness and what is good, we will be comforted. Here's what I think is interesting. Knowing that I will be comforted, does to, what to me now? It comforts me now. Knowing that God himself is going to console me later helps me keep my eyes on him now. So it points me. It directs me to him in his direction. Verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So meek does not mean weak. Meek refers to a person who does not insist upon their quote-unquote rights. The meek is a person who submits to another person for the sake of the good of that person. So to be meek means to be loving so the meek are blessed and fortunate because they are loving people. They're, they're folks that put others ahead of themselves. They put the interests of others ahead of themselves. They are fortunate because they understand that it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is blessed to put others first. And they do so willingly. So disciples of Jesus are the blessed who are meek. And we're willing to be meek and say, you know what? It's, I'm good. It's all right. Whatever you need, right? What's best for you? I'll do whatever. It's better to be that way because of what the verse says. We're going to inherit something. We're going to inherit the earth. So why do I need to throw elbows on planet earth 
and like squash people and try to elevate myself at the expense of other people when this afternoon, tomorrow, 10 years from now, at some point, or, or a thousand years from now, whenever Jesus does it, I'm going to be part of inheriting the earth. So why elbow around here? Why jockey for position at the expense of other people and hurting other people? Yeah, you know what? You can have the stale crackers. I've got this banquet coming with Jesus later on. So I'm good. Verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So the fortunate, the blessed ones, are those who want their lives to be characterized by what is right, by righteousness. By what is right, which means that we want our lives to be godly, is what the verse is saying. It means that we want the world to be right That we don't want this world to be characterized by evil and sin. We want this world to be characterized by the goodness of God. So those who desire to be more like Jesus and for the world to be as it should be, God will give us that. It actually says there that we will be satisfied. He will fill us. If that is what you want, if you want to be more like our Lord Jesus Christ, and you want this world to be exactly the way God wanted it to be, you will have your fill. So instead of longing and craving the things of the world which don't satisfy, God says, crave the things that matter, crave the things of of heaven, the things that are eternal and glorious, crave that, and I will give you more than you want. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So the fortunate are those who grow in their ability to show forgiveness to others, which is not a easy human thing to do. In fact, it bites against every impulse that we have as humans because everything in us wants to be spiteful and everything in us wants to hold grudges and everything in us wants to get even. Am I outing myself? Because no one's shaking in agreement, right? <laughs> okay, like, well, okay, that's me. I'm a resentful cuss. Well, it's only by tasting of the grace of God by receiving the mercy of God, that I'm beginning to be able to show mercy to others. That having been forgiven, I'm growing in my ability to forgive others. So receiving mercy reorients my life. It points my life in a brand new direction, in the direction of mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So way back in the day in antiquity, when you see the word heart in Scripture, it basically heart refers to the inner person. So heart was not only where emotions were, but also your thoughts, your intellect, and your volition. So the heart was the inner person. The true you was the heart. So for a person to be pure of heart was to say that the person is pure. Well, the only way a person can be pure to be clean is if God himself has cleansed them on the inside, right? If God has forgiven us of our sin, if God has freed us from the power of sin over us, that's what it means to be cleansed. It is really a a title that God bestows on a person to be forgiven. So, So because a person is made clean in the eyes of God, it says in that verse that then our eyes will see God. It's because we're pure that we shall see him. 
So he has to do this work in us of cleansing and removing our sin as far as the east is from the west. And when he does that cleansing of our soul, then our eyes will one day see him face to face. And then verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, which does not mean peacekeepers. It means peacemakers. It is those people who help to end hostilities. Those people who help to end conflicts, who help to foster unity. In verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. The fortunate, what it says in verse 10, the fortunate suffer because of their faith in Jesus and because of their faithfulness for Jesus or in Jesus. Like we, we suffer because we love God. We, we live for him, and for some people in this world, sometimes that means suffering and dying, even. And the believer is willing to undergo persecution for the, for the sake of the Lord. The reason why is that we know what's on the other end. So Romans 8 does tell us, like, like we don't count these sufferings of this age much of anything in comparison to the glory that we will enjoy in the life to come. So as a, as a believer, we know that... God loves us, and as a result, we love him, and we live a life in such a way that even if we're persecuted, we're okay with that because it says we shall receive the kingdom of heaven. He is our home. He is our destination. Our eyes will see him. So everything, and I know that was really quick, and maybe one day we'll do a whole series where we'll unpack each one of those a little bit, little bit more uh, elaborately. But everything that Jesus says in those verses is meant to disciple us, to point us in the right direction. And I don't want us to ever look at those verses with a religious eye. I want us to look at those verses with the eye of a disciple. Because what Jesus does here, he does not give us a to-do list. He gives us a to-be list. Be like Jesus. These verses... If they don't do anything, if they don't do this, they are actually a description of who Jesus is. It's what these verses give us. So Jesus was poor in spirit. Jesus is the very mark of humility, the epitome of humility. He is God in Philippians chapter 2 says, Though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in human likeness. So he who was God entered this world, was born of a virgin, took on flesh, became one of us. God became human. He stepped off of his throne and entered into this world, was born in a stable that's humility, is it not? Jesus was poor in spirit. Jesus mourned. Like it, it tells us in Matthew chapter 9 that Jesus looked at the people and he saw they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And it says he was filled with compassion and pity. Like Jesus mourned that there were people that were lost, people that, that were far from the Lord. He mourned that the world wasn't as it should be. Jesus was the, the epitome of meekness. King of kings, Lord of lords, comes to the earth not to be served, but to serve, to put the interests of others first. He is meekness. His hunger and thirst was for righteousness. He actually says in John chapter 4, it is my food to do the will of the Father. That was his nourishment. I just want to obey God. I just want to do what the Lord says. I just want to do right. I want my life to be right. I want to be part of helping make this world right. That's what he 
feasted off of it. That's what he hungered after. That's what he thirsted after. Jesus was merciful, was he not? He's beaten and slapped, spat on as he's dying on a cross. And instead of unleashing thousands of angels upon the people, he said what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Merciful. Was Jesus pure in heart? Absolutely. Tempted in every way, yet he never sinned. Peacemaker, his entire mission was a mission of peace to reconcile fallen man who's hostile with God, to reconcile us to God and to break the dividing wall among peoples and bring us together. He was a peacemaker. Was Jesus persecuted for righteousness sake? Absolutely. All he ever did was tell the truth, but he was hated for it. He came to shine the light of God, but he was despised for it. So much so that men went one night under the cover of darkness, an illegal arrest, an illegal trial, unlawfully convicted him, wrongly convicted innocent Jesus, then proceeded to beat him, slap him, mock him, whip him, scourge him, nailed him to a cross. All because he was righteous and all because his message was a message of righteousness and then God does what only God does he takes that moment and he redeemed it because God can take the worst thing which was the the violent murder of innocent Jesus took the worst moment in all of history turned it and transformed it into what is the most beautiful moment in all of history the means by which we can receive eternal life so Jesus was crucified not only because he was righteous but to make us righteous he was persecuted for righteousness sake we're the sake we're the unrighteous and he died and was persecuted to make us righteous it is a title that god gives to us so here's jesus on the cross he took your sin and i know i say this every week and i will say this every week until i pass Jesus on the cross, he took your sin and your guilt and your shame, your immorality and your flaws, your lies and your gossip and your slander, your impatience and your bad wifing and your bad husbanding, your bad parenting, your fears and your worry. He took all of your insecurity and he says, I will own it. I will take it. I will take your flawness and your ugliness. I will own it as if I had done it all and I will stand in judgment for you. That's the cross. And wrath and punishment and judgment and condemnation gets poured out on Jesus. Though he never did anything wrong, it gets poured out on him so that Julie and Monica and Ashley and Tom and everyone else in this room. So we like, I don't have to stand in judgment anymore. Whereas before I was under the umbrella Like it it was hanging over me like a sword where that was there. It is no longer there because Jesus took it. And so he died our death. And he paid the cost. And so he did that to spare us. To spare us from what belonged to us. And now all who place their faith in Jesus, who believe in him, and say, yes, Lord, I will follow you. Who say that. We're forgiven. We become co-heirs with Christ. We're given a new home, a new place, and we're given this new status of righteous. Not that we don't sin, but in God's eyes, we're no longer sinners. In the Bible, he calls us the holy ones, which is what the word saints means. In Christ, we are holy. 
not by conduct, but by position, all a gift of God. So the question we always have to ask, have you said yes? Have you said yes to the, to the Lord saying, will you follow me? Have you said yes to the Lord and believing in him? So to go all the way back to where we began, a ship needs three things. Displacement, propulsion, and navigation. And I want to apply, take these verses and apply it to us. So let's start with displacement. What sin do you need to displace in your life? Because these verses are a description of Jesus. So if we're a follower of Jesus, we're to become like Jesus. These verses describe Jesus. So what sin, sinful attitude or pattern do you need to displace and push away in your life so that these verses become characteristic of you? So for some, it might be pride. Having this like inordinate self-value, like thinking of ourselves a little bit too highly, thinking our britches are really bigger than they really are, thinking that we're a silverback gorilla when we're just a fish. So is pride a sin you need to displace and replace with the humility of Jesus? For some, it's self-centeredness. So for some of us, we just walk around with a me-first attitude. Like, it's all about me. I mean, I'll be nice and I'll help people so long as I got mine first. So long as I got all my ducks lined up and it's all about me. So that, that self-centered, some of us need to displace that and replace it with meekness and putting others first and putting the cause of Christ first, etc. For some, it's, we're hungering for the wrong things. So it's materialism. I just want more stuff. If I just had more stuff, I'd be happy. Well, stuff doesn't satisfy. So we need to displace a, lo- a hunger for the things of the world and replace it with a hunger for the Lord and his kingdom and his righteousness. And for some, it's resentment. Like, that's what we got to displace. Man, our heart just holds on to, like, resentment. And so we need to kick that to the curb because it's actually destroying us. It's causing us to sink. So we need to kick that to the curb, get rid of it, and replace it with mercy, forgiveness, grace. So there's a whole host of like, sins we could talk about, but maybe one of those, or maybe there's another one that you're struggling with, that the that Lord right now is telling you, you need to displace that. You need to get rid of that, because that's not helping you become like Jesus. All right, consider propulsion. So a ship needs something to push it forward. So Our propulsion, I think, is offered in each one of these verses. It's the promise of God that all who have faith in Jesus will receive his kingdom, will see him one day. He will personally wipe away our tears. We're going to be a prince or princess in his kingdom forever and ever, and we're going to be fully satisfied. That's a pretty good gig. Like, that's an incredible promise. Like, like, and it's all done by the Lord Jesus. So that's not something we've earned or deserved. It was all accomplished by Jesus alone and his sacrifice. So his blood has signed, sealed, and delivered the promise. It is guaranteed, and it is absolutely insured. Folks, if that doesn't push us forward, forward and compel us and drive us and, and, and help to inspire us to be more like Jesus, I'll tell you, nothing will. If you don't get excited about the fact that you get to be part of God's heaven forever and ever, Lord, help you. And me. No, I'm just being honest. Like, if that doesn't get us going in the right direction, I don't know what will. Just think about it. Because the alternative is so bad. In navigation, what step is God calling you to take? 
or asking you to take? Like, what step do you need to take to make sure that you're heading in the right direction? So for some of us, we need to start reading our Bible. But what, what does Jesus actually say? What does the Word of God actually say? So go to Uversion, Y-O-U-Version.com. You can actually access that through our website, anthem-church.org. There's Bible reading plans there. So, like, I don't know where to start. Okay, well, some people have figured some things out, and you don't need to reinvent the wheel, so go to uversion.com. I, I, don't, I don't like reading on a screen. I prefer hard copy. You're in luck. Stop by the info table if you don't own a Bible and grab one of these, and it's yours for free. We want everyone to have the, a copy of God's Word. Uh, I recently, on our website, if you go under resources, I added a page, like recommended reading, recommended books. Folks, like, spend some time reading. Like, like th- there's other authors out there that can help to disciple you and mentor you. So spend some time reading. If you get through that list, God, praise God, I'll give you some other books to, to read at that point. Uh, join an A-team. There's some, 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 something supernatural that happens when God's people get together to actually read and study God's Word together. It's an amazing thing that can't happen in any other situation. So get in a small group. we got a men's group, women's group, co-ed groups, youth groups, etc. All right, this is how we stay on track. you just got to expose yourself to enough of Scripture always, constantly, alongside with God's people. But... Being a disciple isn't simply about me growing as a disciple. Being a disciple means I'm helping other people to grow as a disciple. Anthemers, what is our church mission? Our church exists to fill Andrew and the world with love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus. That's our God-given role. Our God-given role. So there may be a person in your neighborhood, a person at work. A friend, uh, uh, a family member, someone that God's like, you know what? You need to share the gospel with them. You need to start engaging in spiritual conversations. You need to start finding ways or looking for ways to, to bring Christ and the gospel to bear into these conversations. One way of making disciples is, folks, there's a crew of people right now, and many of you that are in here will do this next week, and some of you did it last week, that are helping to disciple a whole new generation of followers of Jesus. And so that's just an easy way, a convenient way. You're already here on a Sunday, so you're going to give one Sunday once a month and help to, like, disciple the next generation so that they would grow up to be love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus. Or it might, for some of us, it might be simply inviting someone to our small group. Inviting someone to church. But all of these things exist for that we can be part of the mission of God, that we would grow in Christ's likeness and help others to grow in Christ's likeness. So what step is the Holy Spirit asking you to take today? Is it salvation? Like you've never said yes to Jesus? Well, it has to start there. That's the most important thing. Other than that, it's like, are you reading your Bible? Like maybe God right now is like, hey, it's time to start reading the Bible. Like, let, let, let's educate yourself in God's word or maybe some other resources or a small group. Again, inviting people to church, investing in the lives of others. Whatever the Holy Spirit is saying, say yes. Just say yes. Say yes. I will follow. I will follow and embrace it. Theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Christianity without discipleship 
is religion. And religion is of no value to anyone. Christianity that matters, that's real and pure, is discipleship. Christ, growing in Christ-likeness and having his word to bear upon our lives. So, are you a follower? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Have you said yes? Have you said yes to him? I repent of my sins, Lord, and I follow you. Have you said yes? Are you aimed toward him? Are you growing in Christ-likeness? Are you listening to his word? Are you following what he's asked you to do? Displace sin. Be propelled by grace. Let him lead you in the next step and follow. Be a ship. Be a good ship heading in the right direction. I'm going to ask you all to pray. Close your eyes. We're going to pray. And you know what? I'm just going to give you about a minute or so and just going to ask that you would just sit quietly and for you to respond to what Jesus has said, just yourself. What is it that the Lord is asking of you today? Lord, Father, you are, you are good and gracious and kind. You've not left us alone in despair. You've not left us to flounder around in this world. Lord, you, in your wisdom, in your grace, you give direction to us. Instruction for what to do and which way to go in. Lord, you light our path. You guide our steps to avoid the cliffs of this world and the cliff of the next one. Lord, you sent your Son Jesus, you came into this world to give your life, that we would have life, to pay for our sin, that we would be forgiven and spared, to give your life, that we would be with you in your presence forever. So, Lord, we, I confess, I know, your word says that we are saved by your grace through faith. And that all who come to you, who call upon your name, who repent of their sin and give their lives to follow you, Lord, you wipe the record clean. You give us a new bill of health, Lord, clean and pure in your eyes. Our future guaranteed in your hands where we will walk in your midst in an ocean of glory and kindness. Lord, I pray, I ask that if there's anyone in this room who's here this morning who has never from the depths of their heart just said yes to you, that they would do so now. Like nothing else matters in this world until we say yes to you to follow you. For those who, of us who have said yes, Lord, help us to grow in Christ-likeness. Lord, sanctify us by your word, by your truth. Lord, make us more holy. We, we don't like the sin, Lord. It is ugly and it's awful and... It hurts and it harms and it destroys, Lord. We don't like it. We don't want it. We want it executed and put away, Lord, and displaced from our lives, Lord. We want to be like you. Lord, may the world see us and hear from us that they too may come to know the Savior. That they too may come to know the power of the cross. That wonderful cross that has given us new life. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.